This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. We'll have something very different for you now and possibly not what you're expecting. The Book of Common Prayer is a number of prayer books used in the Anglican Communion. The original book was published in 1549, following the English Reformation and the break with Rome. Now, it's a charming little book, which contains morning prayer, evening prayer, the litany and the Holy Communion. And while it has been revised for several years, its author, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramer, has arguably been one of the greatest fathers of English literature. Well, it was lovely to spend some time with Senator David Norris and hear his insightful and heartwarming thoughts on the Book of Common Prayer. I asked David about his choice of book, as most people would have expected him to choose James Joyce's Ulysses. Well, I think a lot of people might imagine I'd take Ulysses, but that'd be predictable. I thought about The Great Gatsby, but then the book that had been a constant presence in my life since I was a very small child and still means a great deal to me and contains huge wisdom and cultural background is The Book of Common Prayer of the Anglican Communion. And what you've got there is, you know, a whole book of Psalms. You've got both the Old and New Testament, beautiful Gospels. Can you tell me a bit about it? Well, first of all, there's the history of the book, which I find fascinating. I mean, as I say, I've known it since I was a child because my mother uh, used to, uh, before breakfast, assemble us in the dining room and we had to turn the chairs backwards. And I can still remember, I used to gnaw on the chair and I can still remember the taste of the wood. And we had in those days what used to be called a servant girl. But she was actually quite elderly and she was lovely, called Nellie. And she was excused because she was Roman Catholic. But my mother would read out the college of the day and also the other two colleagues. And if you listen to the language, It is so beautiful. O God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom, defend us, thy humble servants, in all assaults of our enemies, that we, surely trusting in thy defence, may not fear the power of any adversaries, through the might of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's so embracing. It's wonderful. And when my aunt was dying, I read that to her and I repeated it to her. It was like a mantra. And there are other beautiful colleagues and the lessons for the day, if it's matins or evensong, and even that word, evensong, isn't it lovely? It's like the kind of the birds in the evening singing before they go to sleep. And in them, there are passages, short passages from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, the whole book of Psalms of of King David. And there is something that we share with the the other two great monotheistic religions, Islam and Judaism. And we sometimes forget that. I mean, I remember being at the bar mitzvah of a friend of mine's son, and I hadn't realized that uh, the Lord lift up his face, lift up his countenance and shine upon you. And they said this. And I thought, well, they've stolen one of our prayers. And I didn't realize, of course, it actually goes back to the original Judaic element. So there is this wonderful beauty and consolation of language. But also, nobody died for the making of Ulysses. Nobody was killed so that the Great Gatsby could be published. But if you go back to the history of the Reformation, people like William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English, and that was such a huge struggle. And we have the majesty in the Book of Common Prayer of the King James Bible, which is just celebrated its 400th anniversary, and Archbishop Cranmer, who was the 
author of the Book of Common Prayer, he paid with his life as well. So it is a precious book. And I'm just looking at your own copy. It's this lovely little red copy. You've lots of different notes in it. And it, you can really see that it, you've carried this through your life. Yes. But unfortunately, I don't have to bring it to church anymore because they print the order service and they leave out some of the best bits, which I think is, is really a, a pity. But, I mean, if you look at Evensong, for example, or the Psalms, I mean, how could you better the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, therefore can I lack nothing. He shall feed me in a green pasture and lead me forth beside the waters of comfort. He shall convert my soul and bring me forth in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I mean, that verse, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, modern English can't encompass that. And we all know what that feels like and the comfort that is there is wonderful. And do you think this is one of the great books of the English language? Oh, I have absolutely absolutely no doubt that it is and it incorporates that other seminal book which is the King James Bible and the other thing that I think is of interest from a literary point of view is James Joyce who's one of my great loves was absolutely saturated in the ritual of the Roman Church and the Missal and the Rosary and all that you find it all the way through from Dubliners to Finnegan's Wake whereas Samuel Beckett was Church of Ireland and all through Beckett's plays and prose works you find echoes of the King James Bible and particularly also of the Book of Common Prayer. But I don't think people realize that so much because it's not as well known, it's not as universal a book. So it's of interest that Beckett, who was least an agnostic, I mean, he said, uh, God doesn't exist, blast him. <laughs> it was a rich source uh, for him as well. It's relevant to contemporary culture because it's influenced writers, yes. it's influenced art, it's influenced music. There's such rhythmic prose to it. Yes, I think the settings. Now, f- for example, the, the Anglican Church has a, a tradition. All churches have wonderful traditions of music, or many of them. I mean, just down the road from me, there's a Palestrina Choir in the Pro Cathedral, which is utterly magnificent. In St. Patrick's, we have a, a wonderful choir as well. I don't always like the choice of, of music, uh, because I like Haydn, Mozart, Schubert, and we get an awful lot of modern music these days. But the setting of the Psalms, the choral setting of the Psalms, is, to my mind, almost as beautiful as the settings of the services you get in the Russian Orthodox Church, Bortnyansky and Rachmaninoff and these sort of people. It really absolutely lifts you and the the music fits in with the words, with what is being said in in the language. And the Book of Common Prayer, if I was to try and access it now and try and get my hands on a Kramer copy, how would I do that? Well, I think you'd have to go to a country church somewhere and root around in the vestry. I don't know that it's even available anymore. Uh, But I know, for example, in England, in London sometimes, if I'm over there, I, I pass a church in a taxi and it says... B-O-C here, Book of Common Prayer, because people love it. I mean, the, and I think there's, there's a foolishness in thinking that if you dumb things down, young people will be attracted. No, they won't. They're attracted to beauty and mystery and the incandescence of language. It's just like Irish. To my mind, Irish was destroyed by simplifying it, by turning it into Roman script, where we had our own beautiful typeface, typography, for which Queen Elizabeth was also, to a certain extent, responsible because she printed the first book... Uh, in the Irish language and had that typeface made. Uh, We lost that. We lost the individual characteristic of of the language. And I remember speaking to people on the Aran Islands and they said, well, you know, we don't really feel 
that it's Irish anymore. And I think it's the same with the Book of Common Prayer. I think there should be a place for it. Yes, there should be a place for folk masses and guitars and all this kind of stuff. But I think there should be a place, a respected place for the Book of Common Prayer, as I think there should be for the Mass in Latin. I think it should be available. But it's historical legacy. Well, I think it's... And cultural legacy. Well, I I think it's a book of profound historical and cultural uh, legacy. And there's a, a curious little quirk. An ancestor of mine on my mother's side was uh, taken as a hostage by Henry VIII when he was quite small because his father was the, the Lord of Austria and um, misbehaved and rebelled against the British and so on and so forth. So he was kept there, you know, to make sure that Papa behaved. And um, he became very close to Edward VI, who was actually responsible for authorising the prayer book. And the two of them became very holy. And I can just imagine, you know, it's interesting. His name is Sir Barnaby Fitzpatrick. And I think it's funny to have that kind of connection. And as I was saying to you earlier, I have family prayer books going back to the 17th century. And they're beautifully printed. And they have those long F things instead of S's. And wonderful prayers and things. And some of them are very plain. But I have one when the family must have been going through a good period. And as an object, it's also beautiful because it's leather, it's calf-bound, it has gold-tooled titles on the spine and it has a sterling silver clasp and then a kind of family tree in old quavery writing in the background. But it's the only one that has because my aunt tore all the other ones out because she didn't want anybody to know her age. And you're holding the strength and the emotions of generations of your forefathers, sir. Absolutely. There is this great feeling of tradition that you're with in the cathedral, all the people who worshipped there before, and that, that great tradition unbroken for so many years. I think it would be a great shame if, if we lost the Book of Common Prayer completely. And for those who think they don't know much about the Book of Common Prayer, there's lots of expressions that we use today, like from death to his part, classic, uh, you know, in, in, in marriage. There's so many expressions there that are directly from the Book of Common Prayer. Of course, it's not entirely politically correct either which is fascinating because they have all kinds of services for the ordering of deacons, for the consecration of bishops but also for the churching of women, uh, which has now been completely removed and that was for women after childbirth they brought their children and they were given a blessing and the feminist movement I think felt that this meant that women were dirty and unclean and so on which of course in the ancient tradition they were and they had to be cleansed after childbirth but some women found it wonderful and refreshing and so on but it's gone now so you can see the way uh, things change but the eternal verities are there and if you think for example of Evensong and, and this and the Nunc Dimittis. And when you think of evening prayer or Evensong, and it only survives, I think, in one parish church now, St. Bartholomew's, where I used to sing in the choir. And there's one gentleman there, lovely man, Bobby Barden, who was singing in the choir when I was a choir boy 60 years ago. And I think he'd been singing in it for 70 years because he went in as a choir boy. That must be a world record. They have even song there, and I've occasionally been. Uh, they have it in the cathedral, but it's three o'clock, so it's really afternoon song rather than even song. And the Nunc Dimittis, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of the people Israel. I think that's wonderful. You see, what, what I find so lovely in these things is the emphasis on peace. O God, who art the author of peace? Because I think we all long 
for peace. And particularly at the end of our lives or even in intervals in our lives. And I found that, I found this was a wonderful comfort when I was going through difficult times and when I was being vilified because a lot of the Psalms uh, and a lot of colleagues are to protect you against being vilified and the backbiting and, and so on. And it is so reassuring to feel that there is some entity that's there for you. And that's what's promised by the Book of Common Prayer. It's not a dead book. It's very much a living book, even though the language is old and it will never be excelled for beauty. And how do Roman Catholics or Buddhists or Hindus interpret the Book of Common Prayer? Is it a book that anyone from any particular religious or spiritual perspective can pick up and read and enjoy purely as a book, as a story, to turn to it as a place of refuge? I would think so, but I doubt if very many do, because I'm not sure that they're aware of it. Now it's been kind of banished, which is a real shame. The prayer have been modernised, they still have their own quality, the essential quality of the thought, but they lack the rhythm and the melody which makes up so much of it. I can tell you what Joyce uh, uh, felt, at least in one aspect, because in one of the stories in Dubliners, his first uh, book, uh, he describes the parishioners emerging from St. George's Church in Hardwick Place and crossing the little semicircle in front of the church uh, with her prayer books clasped in their gloved hands. <laughs> That's a wonderful image of the Dublin Protestant of the beginning of the uh, 20th century. We're, we're in very challenging times now, David, and a lot of people are struggling to pay their mortgages, dealing with unemployment in their own lives or in their family, having challenges raising children. What verse here would you say if you were to go to one verse? What would it be that, well, that would provide solace and a feeling of comfort? Well, I think uh, most of the colleagues some of the Psalms, but in particular the third colleague for grace, which is really for the capacity to survive difficulty. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance, to do always that is righteous in thy sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. And isn't it extraordinary how one book allow anybody, you, me, or anyone listening out there, to survive a lifetime? Well, I think so. And certainly in my lifetime, this has been a very important book. And I still do read it from time to time. I don't take it really to church anymore. There's no point because the services are different. And sometimes there are these quite lengthy uh, improvised prayers, which give me a bit of a pain. Uh, sometimes they're very focused and good, but sometimes they go on and on. I don't care for that at all. I'd prefer the more ordered, disciplined thing. But the great thing about St. Patrick's Cathedral is we have a different person giving the sermon every Sunday. So you don't have the same poor old priest having to trot out something and desperately dredge through the Bible and possibly misinterpret it and get it all wrong. And let everyone else misinterpret as well. Yes. I mean, we have something r really interesting and it's often related. Recently, we had uh, the dean gave a wonderful sermon, quite simple, but it was about how he had gone with a friend many years ago to a lecture in the mansion house that was by this man who had worked with lepers in India. Uh, the friend went off and became part of, worked with lepers in India. And the dean, Victor Stacy, it started a process in him that led him eventually to ordination. And I think that is, that is wonderful. So we get different sermons and then we have, for matins, we keep quite close to the Book of Common Prayer. And the said communion service is 
the real Cranmer Book of Common Prayer. But I go for the religious substance, but I have to say the music does help. And I occasionally shop around to Christchurch or St. Bartholomew's, and they often still do perform Mozart's Coronation Mass or Haydn's Mass of St. John of God and this sort of thing. And the music is so exalting, you know. But for me, it used to irritate me that people would say, oh, of course, you're too intelligent to believe anything. Uh, you go just for the aesthetics. No, I don't. But I have no problem with the aesthetics helping. And the beauty of the language of the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the beauty of the settings of the Mass of Haydn and Mozart and so on. But the only positive thing I can see about this new rather pedestrian English is that it's exactly the same in the Roman Catholic Church. So it means we've actually met. And the translation from the Latin and the translation from Cranmer's English shows there isn't a damn bit of difference between us. And we really should get together in humility and love and then try to show a good face to the outside world and also literally face down those elements within the churches um, who are so utterly hate-filled and against various minority groups and so on. And I'm afraid the church hasn't had the vision to do that yet. But um, I think our new Archbishop of Canterbury is turning out better than I expected. And I felt a glow of warmth when I saw Pope Francis coming out on the balcony. I just thought, he's like John the Twenty-Third. And do you think in a hundred year time, Cramer's Book of Common Prayer, do you think it will still survive? Oh, I do, yes. I think there will be a revival because of its beauty and because the other kind of tricks of the game simply haven't worked. So, I mean, you have empty churches with people blathering out this uh, modern English and nobody listening. Uh, you see, I think there should be a kind of missionary zeal, in a sense, not to try and proselytize or convert people or this sort of business, but just to let them know, this is here. This is wonderful. I mean, St. Patrick's Cathedral is in the middle of the city of Dublin, and on Sundays it's full, but it's full of tourists. Where are the local people whose lives could be so enriched? There are some, there are a few local people who go. So, David, I think you're going to um, finally read from a verse from the communion. Yes, it's part of what they call the comfortable words, and it's just the first piece of it. Hear what comfortable words our Saviour Christ saith unto all the truly turn to him. Come unto me, all the travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Isn't that wonderful? And comfortable words, it doesn't mean that you sit back and you're comfortable. It means comforting. You travel, you work, you struggle, you drudge and trudge. But yet, there's something there. Come unto me, and I lift your burden, and I will refresh you. I think everybody, the gloved and the ungloved, will be comforted by that.
And I hope that brought you to another place. It certainly did for me. And that was Jan Garbuk and the Hillard Ensemble ending this week's interview with Senator David Norris. Well, that's it for Talking Books for this week. I'd just like to thank Valerie Jordan on research and the lovely Alan Regan on sound. We've been Talking Books. Why don't you stretch out of that bed, take a massive deep breath and try where you can to have a bit of courage, grace and hope in whatever small or extraordinary thing you do. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.